Catherine Spencer's rugby career as an England international and captain saw her win the Six Nations multiple times. She won Player of the Year awards. She won European tournaments, Nations Cup and played in two World Cup finals. Her win ratio during her England captaincy was 93%. Now, for most people, that would constitute a successful career. Catherine has just released her book, Mud, Mall and Mascara, which follows her life from the very early days of mixed mini rugby and onward as she sought to realise her dream of winning a World Cup. We met up earlier to talk about her book and her life. Anybody that was expecting this uh, a jaunty little tale of, of, of a girl falling in love with a sport going on to be one of the most successful players of a generation is going to be really surprised by the opening pages of this book. In the opening chapter, we come across quotes, I led a selfish life. Uh, you feel guilty about the time and emotion that you put into a dream that you say never became a reality. You say, I failed myself and my family. It seems a very, very harsh assessment of your quite significant achievements. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's a very um, emotionally honest book. So it's very important to me to start with that raw um, emotion, that experience. And, a, you know, a big part of my rugby journey, if you like, is not is about not winning those World Cups in 2006 and 2010 and the, the effect that that's had on me. Um, and for, you know, leading this, as you've already mentioned, selfish life of mine in a way of kind of chasing this dream of, of winning a World Cup. So it is quite a hard hitting start to the book. It wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to write and, um, and it's not the most jolliest of reading to start with. There are some more lighthearted sections of the book later on. Uh, so off to university you went, and uh, good choice of university, Cardiff University, partly due to the rugby. And it's ironic, really, isn't it? Your first time at Twickenham was with Cardiff. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I knew that there was, you know, it was rugby there, big rugby city as well. And I was fortunate enough to be there during the, the men's 99 World Cup, which was, a, you know, it's a fantastic, not much studying <laughs> took place during that, that period of time. Um, but yes, the first time I played at Twickenham, um, you know, our home of rugby was with Cardiff University. Little did I know when I joined, they had such a successful team and um, we played Edinburgh in the, in the final of the, of the universities, uh, British universities tournament there and uh, just missed out on winning that final again as well. Um, but it was, you know, it was a great experience. And, you know, I didn't know at the time I'd carry on to play a few more, few more matches there in England shirt, but it was, I loved my time at university, um, you know, the friends I made and studying, but, you know, rugby was a big part of that. But what surprised me then was when you completed university, you actually stopped playing for a year to go travelling with your brother. I did, yes. You know, rugby had been a big part of my life, you know, club rugby, county, regional rugby and, and at university. Um, but me and my twin brother, had, you know, talked about going travelling a lot. And even at that time, I didn't quite have the confidence yet to, to go for it, to go for this kind of England rugby thing. Um, so actually, it, you know, I wouldn't have changed that decision looking back. I had an amazing year with my brother, but actually it was during that time away, I thought, do you know what, I, I think I should go for it. So it was actually having that, 
that break from the sport and not being in it and able to kind of reflect a bit a little bit to understand that actually I think I think you're good enough I think you can see if you can get to the next step so it was a it was kind of important for me from that perspective but also I had a I had a great you know we were very fortunate that we could go I had a you know absolutely brilliant um 11 months in the end um with my brother traveling uh, you came back you got back into the sport and it's worth actually remembering here the the dedication to become uh, an elite athlete athlete is considerable not only for you it's for your family as well and you you go on to talk about this uh, how much your dad helped out with things like uh, travel early morning travel and you do this thing where you drive shifts where he gives you a chance to sleep in the car because you have to get up very early yeah he was brilliant he was such a supportive you know supportive dad my mum you know was obviously supportive as well but he would uh, you know living at that point down in Folkestone in the in the southeast corner of the of the country wherever our our training camp was being held on a particular weekend it always you know invariably involved quite a long journey for me um and no one else around this corner of the country to share lifts with so my dad would get up really early with me you know five o'clock car five and would drive the first hour and a half he'd get out get the train home and I'd carry on on my way just so I could get an extra bit of sleep before my training weekend and then um, and that was really you know that was fantastic of him at the time but he was I always say this about my parents they were brilliant they were very encouraging but they didn't put you know too much pressure on on any of us it was you know the perfect balance really. Now, after all of that uh, considerable input from your father and the sacrifice, uh, you did choose to repay him in a rather odd way on a trip back to uh, Loughborough. <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 yeah, the, uh, the fuel incident in the car, I assume, is what you're talking yes, about. Yes, yes. A very, very long day um, to Loughborough to go to, and it's sort of a... This was when I was in England Academy, so I was kind of a bit of a step below the main elite squad. And uh, driven all the way to Loughborough on my own. It was really important that I went there, um, you know, to show my sort of commitment to the cause, if you like, and uh, borrowed my dad's work car and um, filled up with fuel before getting back onto the motorway. And then when I made it all the way down to Thurrock Services in Essex uh, for the car not to start again after I'd, after I'd stopped, I was like, what on earth is going on? And after a call to the... Uh, fourth emergency services um i uh, it suddenly dawned on me that i'd put the wrong fuel in the car uh, a couple of hundred miles ago <laughs> and ended up going to this back and beyond garage to to get the uh to get the petrol kind of drains out and then diesel put back the long shot was that i ended up getting home about nearly 24 four hours later after i'd left quite tired and uh, and much poorer in terms of the uh, the money that was sat in my bank account but you know i still would have done it again i still would have gone to that day that debrief day and, and luckily there was no lasting damage to my dad's car <laughs> uh, there is humor is in the book and you're again very open with your own personal diary entries and you you talk about your battles with nutrition and there as you said some honest and funny quotes and saying things and uh, diarising your days where you quote, I've had a very large curry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I used to keep a tire diary sort of on and off, which is, you know, proved quite useful now um, now that I've written this book. And um, it was really nice to be able to include some of those entries. So, yeah, when I, you know, first breaking into the England setup, I found that part of being an elite athlete quite difficult, actually. Um, and kind of you know sort of relationship with with food and getting that part of my 
uh, my career right, if you like. And it did take quite a while for me to do that. I always found it found it quite hard. Um, and it, you know, it's something that I did get right, um, mm. you know, and probably sort of 2009, 2010, I was, I was really on top of that part of my, my job as a, as an international athlete, if you like, but it wasn't something that I found easy to start with, you know, the, the lure of a, of a curry or a, or a chocolate bar or a packet of crisps, <laughs> uh, sometimes was a little bit too much for me. And it, it was difficult, you know, and then, and actually then you go training and stuff, it really kind of affected my confidence a little bit to start with, you know, it's not just what happens on the pitch in those, in the 80 minutes, it's everything around it. And, you know, you kind of got to learn everything if you like. Now, as is often the case with international selections, one person's misfortune leads to another's opportunity. Claire Frost injured. Uh, you made your squad debut for England against uh, Scotland. A big, big day for you. Yes, it was huge. Yes, and uh, at the time I was I was still playing club rugby for Folkestone, so I wasn't playing in the in the women's Premiership. Um, I didn't really know anyone in the setup. They didn't really know me, um, but you know I was kind of sort of spotted on this on this pathway. I'd been in the academy, and the, and Jeff Richards, who was the England coach, asked me to travel up to Scotland, and I, I was pretty I was pretty terrified. I didn't think I should be there really, but it was an amazing experience, you know, and getting presented with a with a red rose. That's what happens mm -hmm. to everyone who's called up for the first time the night before the match was a was a really special occasion, and. Uh, and it was huge to travel up to Scotland with the team. But I didn't, I didn't get on. I didn't, didn't get on the pitch. I didn't win my first cap there. But I got a little taster of what might be coming up. Uh, what stuck out for me here, en route to the game, is you're getting ready to go to, to the England squad, meet up with the rugby team at Heathrow Airport. They ask you to take fifty quid to the airport as your contribution to flight costs. I mean, this for for most people reading this, they'd be thinking. You're just joking. This is this is a joke, surely? No, that's right. I've st I've still got the letters. <laughs> People can see it. So yes, it was. Um, you know, this so this was in two thousand and four, um, and you know it was an amateur game, and and many aspects of the game still are now. And um, yeah, we uh, we contributed towards our our um, our costs, and um, and this but this just felt normal at the time. You know, I didn't I didn't really sort of bat an eyelid to that really. Um, you know, and I would have. If it was possible for me, I, you know, would have probably paid more <laughs> to play for my country. But, um, but uh, I'm not saying that I would wanted to pay my way in. But, um, but yeah, that was fine. That's what we do. You know, we contributed to our costs. You know, to the to the honour of representing our country, and um, and it's just what we did back then. Yeah. It's March twentieth, two thousand four, debut against Wales. Uh, you scored as well. Uh, your family are there. Your dad was so overcome with the the whole emotion of it all. He actually bought all of your ex coaches bottles of port. <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant actually. And uh, you know, so I was still living at home with my parents at that point, and uh, they'd come home after the match, and I stayed in camp obviously to the next day, and came home, and um, you know, we were all really excited and happy, and. Um, and my dad, yeah, he'd bought a bottle of, um, of port for all my old uh, coaches, Mike included, who is my mini rugby coach. He, he really pushed for me to get that award. And it was a sort of really important to actually kind of recognise, you know, the input that they'd had on my on my rugby journey. You know, Folkestone were, went on to become an incredibly supportive rugby club for me, you know, individually and also for the, you know, the Folkestone ladies team. They were absolutely fantastic. And, um, you know, there's some individuals within that that, you know, that really helped us. 
this is the first time is where we start to see mentions in the book about your cravings for uh, a normal life. One of the quotes you use is, as women, we attach too much emotion to things. Was it beginning to get on top of you at that stage? Um, I don't know if it was getting on top of me, but I was always someone that would, you know, would kind of really relish some time away from it so that might be you know just going to see you know an old school friend or something or sort of non-rugby university friends and things like that it was really important for me to have some time away and to just be you know Catherine again not Catherine Spencer the rugby player um to for you know to achieve that kind of healthy balance in my life if you like mm. um so you know I love you know I love playing rugby I love playing rugby for England um but it was important for me to understand that I was I was more than that as well that wasn't just the only person I was uh, World Cup 2006 uh, you beat USA South Africa France uh, then Canada in the semi there never seemed to be any doubt in your mind that you would not only make the final but you would win it yeah, we were, you know, we were expected, very much expected to get to the final in 2006 um, alongside New Zealand. Um, it nearly didn't happen. Uh, we played Canada in the in the semi-final and they nearly got a last, last-ditch try, last-minute try that would have put us out of the tournament, which really, you know, would have been quite a big shock. Um, but luckily that didn't happen uh, and we went through to the final. But we, you know, we, we knew we were going to go to the final and, and we went out there, we went out there to win. And I remember, you know, the morning of the game, walking along with our teammates feeling, yeah, feeling really confident that we were, that we were going to go and win this final. When you got back, to normal life you said you found it very hard to cope with the fact that people were congratulating you and again one of your quotes in, in the book we didn't achieve uh, we lost but you went on to say that losing a world cup final the biggest motivator for the next one and that no amount of money uh, or perks can actually leverage that amount of motivational power that's right. You know, we, as I said, you know, we went out to, to win that final in 2006 and we didn't. So we didn't achieve our target, if you like. So coming back and people coming up, you know, slapping about, well done, you know, that was really good. You know, you've got silver, second best in the whole world. <laughs> For me, that's not, you know, that was not the thought processes were going through my head. You know, we, we went out to win and we didn't. So, we, you know, we did fail, you know, on what our target was. But, you know, in sport you have chance to to put things right and there and then i i knew exactly that i wanted to be involved in the world cup in 2010 uh, our next opportunity to to reach our target if you like so actually losing in 2006 really kind of helped spur me on for the next you know for the next four years as it did the other players that, that continued on to 2010 what what also appeared to irk you was a feeling, a certain feeling that you weren't actually getting taken seriously. Prior to the final, I remember you were on the Today programme on Radio 4. When you were actually asked by the presenter when you'd be good enough to play men. Yeah, it was, that was it. So that was 2006. I remember I was in the in the hotel room in, in Canada, um, you know, I'd taken part in that interview. And that was just kind of one of many questions like that that we were asked and you know I think they thought that it was the right question to ask that would be a mark of our development as a sport you know when we can play against the men and actually it's not the case at all and um, you know it was quite 
quite difficult, quite frustrating. Uh, you know, these questions come in our way. And um, did you never think of the time of just thinking, right? Where's the hang-up button? <laughs> <laughs> I was always ever the ever the uh, diplomat, you know, professional with a little p, diplomat, <laughs> ambassador, all of the above things, and then uh, yeah, after the interview, ah, <laughs> seriously, that is outrageous. But I mean, uh, things you, things did improve as well. You were you were the player of the year in two thousand and six, and for this huge accolade, which it is. Uh, you were given a suit and a towel. Slightly odd combination, yes. I, have I'm you still got both? <laughs> I I do have the suit. I don't quite fit into it, but I will do again. <laughs> um, I don't have the towel. It did get used quite a lot. It was quite useful, I have to be honest. Um, but yes, I mean, I said they, I imagine they got a, a free load of towels from somewhere. <laughs> Uh, you did get your first invite to the Sports Personality of the Year as well, which uh, you were obviously very pleased about because, I mean, it's a, it's a major deal. Uh, but the RFU uh, decided that they would stipulate dress code. Yes. So we used to wear what's called number ones in, in rugby. So it's kind of your post-match attire, if you like. And um, and we had these these this sort of trouser suit that we used to wear that wasn't quite as bad as the one I had when I got my first cap, which was which was really truly awful. These suits were slightly better. However, you know, sports personality of the year, you know, really exciting evening, something that I've you know glamorous watching every year. Yeah. It was very glamorous, you know, and uh, you know, a chance for for sports men to dress up in their suits, sports women to you know put a dress on. And I used to love doing stuff like that and no there I was told to go and sit there in my suit feeling very frumpy <laughs> alongside these you know really glamorous ladies and it was a bit of a so it was really you know amazing to be there exciting to be there but um slightly uh, I felt slightly embarrassed if I'm honest I kept apologizing for people that I was wearing this suit <laughs> tell us about your your first day as captain it's December 2007 um, it wasn't an easy time, was it? Because not everybody agreed that making you captain was the best choice. Yeah, for some, I was sort of a sort of surprising choice, really. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the loudest person. I, so I was quietly confident um, that I could, I could do the job. And, and Gary Street, the head coach at the time, thought I could do it as well. But it was, it was difficult. You know, I was captain for three and a half years for two years I found it very difficult I was you know I was kind of trying to portray this really sort of confident um confidence you know confident leader yeah. inside I was I was shaking really and uh, again I thought you know I shouldn't be doing this I shouldn't be here uh, but I was and I was doing it um but there you know there were those uh, you know one or two in particular in the squad that that didn't want me as captain and it was a really really tough time for me you know someone who sort of struggled with confidence anyway to kind of have to deal with that but actually in the bigger picture it was one of the best things that I had to go through to go through that opposition because I did become a I became a stronger leader for it. It's worth mentioning as well that in the build-up to the 2010 World Cup you're still paying for yourself to do things like get to media engagements to help promote the competition and to promote England women's rugby 
and there you are, you say, worrying about the, the cost of uh, being able to afford a panini. <laughs> yes, uh, I was doing a joint interview with, uh, with Steve Borthwick, who was the men's captain at the time at Penny Hill Park, um, which was the venue that they used for a lot of their, still used for a lot of their training. And uh, I was waiting and ordered a, um, a toasted panini. And uh, yeah, money was very tight for me back then. <laughs> it's worth pointing out again to people that you're having to work, you are working in a full-time job as well as being expected to train as an elite athlete that's right you know very challenging so i worked um near bristol uh at uh, yates uh, leisure center as an office manager which was a, a brilliant job really for me um in that you know I, I enjoyed the job itself but it meant that i could um when i went home i wasn't taking the job home with me i could focus on my rugby then um and they were brilliant employers. They they allowed you know flexible working and towards twenty ten. I was working as a as an office manager um, at the time. You know, so training was before work and then after work and and everything else. So, but you know, it wasn't it wasn't the highest paid job for me. And then then I I actually sort of went part time and took a bit of a pay cut. So you know, I wasn't paid to play rugby. As you say, I was still sort of funding myself to get to different appearances and stuff like that. So you know, I should have kept a spreadsheet actually to see. I probably. You know, for me, that the sort of financial impact was probably quite significant. You know, for me, I put my rugby first rather than my than my career, um, and made you know different career choices. And, and um, you know, I probably I probably lost money uh, playing rugby for England. Uh, becoming a, a star in the public domain. This is about the first time you got asked for an autograph, which stunned you somewhat in the park and ride in Canterbury. <laughs> that's right yeah uh, I was with my mum yes going Christmas shopping I believe it was so yeah I'd, I'd, but a I'd, great you know, feeling I'd, I'd, though <laughs> I'd signed autographs that you know rugby pitches on the you know after games and you know everyone you know and it, that even that was quite strange when it you know first started happening and um, you know this was a time when women's sport was not so so high profile as it is now and then you sort of combine that with your own kind of feelings of you know you shouldn't really be there and confidence issues so it was quite a it was quite an odd feeling to kind of uh, to manage really that people actually oh yeah they want they want your autograph you know I was the young gal that did that <laughs> with other people so it was quite strange to to manage that and then yes getting asked for an autograph on on the park and ride you know I say in the book I wasn't even in rugby kit you know I was in my, <laughs> in my civvies and they still recognize me so it was yeah it was a really nice thing and it's something that I got you know used to and I, I talk about it in the book quite a lot you know it's understanding your own value is really really important and that you know that's part of it that you know people do want to hear from you and speak to you and and see you and um, just as I had been inspired by people when I was younger actually you know this is kind of come full circle and, and you're helping to inspire other people. Now the 2010 World Cup you beat Ireland the USA Kazakhstan you conceded just 10 points those against the USA in three games you scored 146 didn't concede any points in the semi-final to Australia, winning that 50-0. Then the final. The old nemesis were there, New Zealand. What were your feelings going into that final? We were feeling, you know, 
brilliant going into the final and uh, that sort of season previously we'd beaten New Zealand in 2009 um, and the first time they'd lost since 2001 so you know it was home world cup as well and again there was much expectation that it was going to be an England New Zealand uh, final and and obviously that's that's what it was um, and, you know and I remember the feeling from 2006 I remember the sort of the confidence that we had but that had kind of increased now you know we'd beaten New Zealand we knew we could do it if we if we played well we could go out and win that final and but this time you know home world cup we kind of got growing support as well at home you know not just at the sort of at the stadiums but through the media as well so there was this pressure there was this expectation but we put that on ourselves as well you know we were very much going out there to win and we very much knew that we could you got substituted in the final publicly Afterwards, you said you agreed it's a squad game, but your view is now, it's not changed, but you've actually now told the truth and you didn't agree with being substituted at 10 all with 10 minutes to go. No, I didn't. Um, and, you know, no one ever wants to come off a pitch, you know, when they start, you know, they, you know, it happens a lot now with sort of tactical substitutions, but no one really wants to come off. Um, and when I played, it wasn't something that happened very often. You know, I was very you know, fortunate in a way. I didn't get subbed off often. I was normally, a, you know, an 80 minute player and I'd be on the pitch towards, you know, till the end. Um, so when I was subbed off, you know, it's 70 minutes in the World Cup final. It came as a real shock. I was really surprised when I was I was told that was that was happening. Um, so partly I kind of I probably want to know so that I could absolutely completely empty the tank and get it, you know, give it everything, which I hadn't been given the opportunity to do so. Um, and also, you know, it was 10 all. The try that we had scored had come off the, you know, the base of a scrum. So in my position, it was my job to sort of control that ball and then and then um, get the ball to the, you know, to the backs and scrum half. Um, and, you know, the, the player that came on, she was, you know, a good player in her own right. She could be, um, she could in some ways be a game changer, but I I felt at that time that it wasn't, it wasn't the right thing to do. Now, and it's hard for me to say that because I'm good friends with Gary Street, mm, <laughs> who yeah. was the coach. But, you know, I was in the middle of the pitch. That's, that's how I felt and that's how I still feel. He was in the stands watching the game and he could see what was happening, you know, as part of a bigger picture. So, you know, if you ask him the question, he'll, you know, he'll give his, his, his you know, give his reasonings. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm not saying that we would have won if we, if I'd stayed on, but um, I, I found the decision very difficult and I, I don't think I, it's something that I would do, you know, take your captain off with, with 10 minutes to go in, in that situation. Uh, bringing a bit of uh, levity back into the situation, I mean, it was a it was a terrible day for you because you had a home emergency to deal with when you got home as well. After the World Cup final, I yeah. really did. Yes, it absolutely. was a massive so issue. <laughs> it was it was very massive in all the ways. And one, so I hadn't, you know, I'd gone back to my flat in Bristol. I hadn't really been there for about you know three months. And um, you know, after the World Cup final, I'd had a couple more days down in, in, you know, London filming and stuff. So I eventually get home and I'm so excited to get into, you know, my own bed. Everyone knows that feeling when you've been away from home and particularly sort of, you know, the experience of the World Cup and then, um, you know, not winning, obviously. And, uh, you know, I get into bed, you know, I'm all cosy. And then I see this massive spider <laughs> in my bedroom. Out of the and I'm not very good with spiders. 
but it was huge and there it was in my bedroom taunting me and then I I did try to be very brave and try to get rid of the spider um and I didn't manage it and then it darted behind the wardrobe and so I ended up my first night back in my nice little cozy flat sleeping in the little single bed in the spare room <laughs> it just at the time it just felt a bit just typical really <laughs> No, you didn't, uh, you said you didn't want to take that silver medal, you know, it's in a bag in a box and it comes out when you pretend to enjoy showing it at school assemblies. Uh, you d you had a moment at a school assembly where you showed it and a boy put up his hand and said, and again, I, 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 I couldn't quite believe this, sticks his hand up and says, uh, it's silver, that means you've lost. Uh, did you uh, hit him or...? <laughs> uh, um, it was really difficult because mostly when you go to sort of primary schools and it was good, they're wow look at that medal that's really exciting and I talk you know I talk about the sort of the positives of what we've done and uh, you know I don't, I don't start any kind of school assemblies how I've started my book you know it's kind of more supposed to be more uplifting and um, you know and it, you know it's important to you know say that we do win at things and we also lose at things but you know it's looking forward that's important but yeah so taking this medal around you know and, and you know or forcing myself to do that and you know it's very sort of um observational of the of the little boy really but you know I was emotionally quite fragile at the time and then it was quite a sort of unexpected thing for a, for a boy to say really and it was quite it was quite difficult and um and yeah, I think I sort of remember saying, you know, you know, it's a silver medal and, you know, New Zealand won the final and all this sort of stuff. But it was, yeah, it was very difficult. Back to more serious matters, though. After, after that final in the days and weeks following, you say that you found it very difficult to, to get through days and even perform the, the most mundane tasks. Uh, was there any help offered? Uh, by the the RFU or anybody else on how to cope not with losing a final but returning back to a more stable normal life yeah it was really um, it was really difficult um you know sort of trying to kind of I suppose reassimilate back into life after you know not just the experience of not winning a world cup but kind of you know the everyday task really for me that you know that not winning was the was the most difficult thing but um no there was no support nothing and actually that's probably when we needed it the most um you know as players we'd just been involved in this really um highly charged emotional experience really you know being part of this world cup it's quite difficult to explain really you know you're sort of part of this bubble for you know several weeks for us really but that's after a long journey you know four years of trying to sort of win the world cup in that cycle and then the years before that you know trying to get into you know into the england setup so it's it's quite a, a draining time really win or win or lose i'd imagine so but you know after world cup it you know off you go back to back to your own lives back to work and everything there was there was no support at the time and and you know now i kind of think i hope they i hope there is support there now for for players that have been in, you know, not just rugby, lots of sports, you know, that's the time when you need mm -hmm. it really, when you go back to your kind of everyday lives, particularly for those that, you know, are, are amateur and having to go back to work. It was, it was really, really difficult. You know, I remember thinking, oh, I've got to, you know, I'm going to have to go out and get some bread and milk today. You know, there was a shop probably less than five minutes walk from my, from my flat where I was living in Bristol. And but even some days that felt really, you know, quite challenging thing to do. Your decision to stand down, you don't know why or how you made the decision to retire. You say you didn't want to be deselected. 
do you think now when you look back that you went too soon? As difficult as for me to say this, I actually think, yeah, I, I kind of wish I'd stayed on a bit longer. Um, I wish, I feel like, no, I hadn't given it everything. So at the time, my decision to retire was because I did want to, you know, I wanted to retire on my own terms, I suppose, is, is a kind of concise way of saying it. But now I think, well, I didn't give it everything. So um, I didn't, you know, I didn't give everything to the cause. And then, you know, I talk about it in my book, England Women went on to win in 2014. So that kind of made that feel even harder. You know, could I have been part of that, you know, if I'd carried on? You know, I might not have been, but I would have given it everything to get there. When you again look back, you say, I think my life would have been better had I not ever played for England. What did you mean by that statement? Quite possibly. You know, I, as I said, uh, you know, I, I, everything was about rugby. Everything was about playing rugby for England. So any kind of job and career I had, that was secondary. So I had to go to work to, you know, to pay bills, to pay rent, pay mortgage. Mm. Um, you know, I had to do that. But everything was about this goal I had, you know, to, to win a World Cup. And now, really, that's relatively short term in the context of your of your life. Um, you know, so actually, had I not done that, you know, you know, I did a degree at university. Um, you know, I might, you know, I would probably be in a fairly good position financially now. I'd be, you know, have a good career, you know, I would, you know, if my own kind of um, uh, own sort of um ambition you know you know using my kind of you know degree in intelligence if you like i i would be in a very different position now um had i had i not played rugby but you know well, your you your knees would have as well. i was gonna say your knees would have been better wouldn't they because they you've had yeah they've played you've, you've had terrible problems uh with knees you don't need surgery because they're that far gone yeah, I will, well, I will have to have my knee replaced uh, at some point. So I've now got, you know, arthritis in my in my right knee and quite possibly my left one as well. I don't want to go and get it checked out at the moment. And, uh, you know, I'm still, I'm, I'm old in rugby years, but young in life years. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, they don't want to do anything to it now. But, um, you know, I've got a, um, you know, my everyday life now is, is starting to, to affect it now. And... Um, at some point, I yeah, I will need to get my my knee replaced. But you know, things like I used to actually, well, I didn't think I enjoyed doing it in time, but just putting a pair of trainers on and going out for a twenty minute run, um, I'd love to be able to do that again, and and I, and I can't do that now. You moved on after that, obviously, and you stayed within rugby with the women's rugby development uh, department. But again, I mean, you're given something of an impossible job, really, aren't you? You've got no budget and you're reliant on volunteers. I mean, that can't have been an easy transition. It was quite difficult, yeah. So I, I worked as a, yeah, developing women and girls rugby down in the, in the southwest. And um, and actually looking back, we achieved a huge amount. Um, and the volunteers in that region were, were brilliant, you know, but we had very little resources, <laughs> um, very little budget to work with. Um, so actually it was trying to kind of garner that real personal drive of the you know the volunteers and the, and the desire you know by by a few to try and help increase you know the growth of the women and girls game so looking back i was really impressed with what was achieved down there um but it was it was difficult you know and sometimes i was having to try and kind of 
influence my own colleagues um, at the RFU that you know that we should be doing more in women and girls rugby. So it was not it was not an easy task. You you suddenly as well seem to wake up to the fact that hang on a minute I'm not doing particularly well financially here, and you you say you often felt embarrassed by it because you had this quite high profile people knew who you were and people tended to expect that you had a comfortable well-off standard of life which was anything but and you you talk about the fact that you know between 2014 and 16 you found it difficult to do things like pay mortgage yeah it was a it was a really tough time and uh, in 2014 i left i left the rfe to set up my own um, business, which I'm, you know, I'm still still running now, but it was very, very difficult um, financially. Yeah, some months I wouldn't have any idea how I was going to be able to pay the mortgage next month. You know, I'd be sat on the bottom of my stairs crying on my own behind the door, and um, you know, but I didn't want other people to see this. You know, I was, I was Catherine Spencer, you know, former England rugby captain. I, you know, that's that's not what I did, and I was still doing things for free for people. I was still doing too much for others, um, and not really putting the, the value on my time that I should have done. You moved into the media, uh, and you started to get some uh, work, commentary, et cetera, et cetera. There was one company who said that they wouldn't employ you because you'd never won a World Cup. What were your feelings then when, when you were actually told that? I found that really hard, in a, particularly because uh, sort of, you know, speaking, public speaking, media work, something that I really, really enjoyed. Um, you know, I was always getting positive feedback, doing a great job and everything. And then being told that I was unlikely to get much more work because I hadn't won a World Cup, it didn't quite equate with me. And and particularly because the same rule was not applied to, to men's pundits and commentators. So I found that really, really tough. And then again, there was like, oh, you didn't win, you didn't win, you didn't win a World Cup and it's continuing to impact you. It's very difficult. Because yeah, you start to, you highlight what is uh, inequality in what you came across in terms of basic things like recognition. You know, you talk about black tie events. I mean, everybody's been to those where all of the, the England players, past and present, get a mention and they don't mention that you're there at all. Uh, England players yeah. called up on stage for a few words. Uh, if you get called up at all, you get called up to pick out a raffle ticket. Yeah, it has been, and it is, it is getting better now, but I've been to, yeah, various events over the years, sort of, oh, we better invite, you know, a couple of female players, tick a box, and you're sort of sat at the back of the room and you don't get a mention, or, you know, it's kind of very difficult. Again, you know, oh, you're not as, you know, you're not as valuable as men, or you're not, you know, you're not as worthy, really. And it, it was very, it's quite a difficult situation to be in because you're, you know, you want these opportunities for other people. So you kind of want to be, you want to come across as, you know, brilliant, you know, it's good that we're here kind of thing. But, at the same time, it was not in that way. It was, it was put us in some very embarrassing situations sometimes, really. It was quite a tough thing to deal with. Well, I, there was one incident in particular that sort of summed up rugby union at times for me. Uh, it was when you were at uh, Twickenham, you were doing a, you were, you were there in a work capacity, a media capacity, uh, and during half time in the press room, uh, you get asked a question. There's various press rooms, but this one particular sort of a small press room that, um, you know, commentators or journalists can go in. Um, so it was just after the men's game, the women playing afterwards. So I was there to commentate on the women's game. And I was in this in this press room and um, and a journalist um, asked me to to get some more sandwiches because, 
you know, why would I be in there otherwise, other than to to be, you know, giving oh, out sandwiches? And so I was like, right, what should I do here? So I actually I found a new tray of sandwiches. You and didn't I them seriously, over and I did, and I bought them over, and then made sure I stood next to this this person speaking to someone else, you know, quite loudly about my um about rugby and what I was about to do, and I could see out the corner of my eye they were like, oh, <laughs> just made a boo boo. <laughs> It is. I mean, you do think that we have moved on a bit from that, but every time you do, you get dragged back into it when you read something like that. It's incredible. Lastly, moving away from from rugby, you do go into some detail about your uh, about your private life and what your expectations of life were. You know, husband, children, house, garden, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and we do get introduced as well to uh, several people who nearly made the cut but didn't quite. Yeah, Mister Nearly Right, Mister Too Nice, Mister Not Right at All, Mister Holiday Romance in Magaluf on the eighteen thirty. Uh, and there was. Um, there was quite a cast list there. <laughs> it was, yeah, another one of my sort of journeys in life, and uh, you know, on my on my quest for the elusive Mr. Right, and um, and it, you know, it did it did happen in the end, but there it was it was a few obstacles to navigate <laughs> on the way, uh, as I mentioned in the book. But um, you know, I did eventually find my Mr. Right. So yeah, it actually provided a really nice, lovely ending to the book. Well, that was Catherine Spencer talking to me about her life and book, which is called Mud Mall Mascara. It is out now and it is available from all good bookshops. Well, that's it for this edition of the Talking Sports Books podcast. Now, don't forget, you can catch up with all of the previous episodes of the podcast via the website and on all of the major platforms. Lots of exclusive interviews with the authors and their uh, subjects. Some great sporting books, including Mark Bright and Steve Perriman's respective biographies. Tris Dixon on his epic journey across America's boxing heartlands. It's called Road to Nowhere. Fabulous book on boxing that. Haida Javad's story of the life of England's singing winger, Colin Granger. Chris Sweeney entertains us with the tales of a footballer whose nickname was Mad Dog. Uh, and from Test Match Special, Peter Baxter, who was the producer of TMS for over three decades before he headed out on tour with the legendary cricket commentator, Henry Blofeld. All of these, as we said, available at the website, www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Alexa and Spotify. Well, that's it. I will be back next month with a new programme. Until then, from me, Tim Capel. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>